our attention to the Word of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious act that you laid down before the foundations of the world. That is your goal to build your church, to do it through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are beneficiaries of that. We are blood-bought Christians, ones who are now followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, ones that you have drawn, not of our own will, not even of our own strength in any way. There is nothing good within us to even choose you. And yet the Bible teaches us that you chose us from the foundations of the world and you drew us to yourself. And here we are, gathered in these unique circumstances, gathered in our homes, in our cars and places of business, listening and worshiping together. But we're still the church. We're the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, adorned in his righteousness. We stand at the right hand of the Father with Christ positionally. This is an amazing position you gave to those who did not deserve it. And so all of our adoration, all of our worship today flows from the understanding of what you accomplished. And we give you praise. We thank you, God, that you are a God of salvation and you are a God of judgment. You do both and you do it perfectly, Lord. We thank you that you bring calamity and you bring peace. You do that perfect as well. All things belong to you. You created all things. You control all things. And even the circumstances we're going through, you are greatly involved. Father, we want to pray for your church here that calls Riverbend their home. We thank you for each and every member, young and old, uh, prominent and maybe less prominent, less known, Lord. All of them are, are beautiful to you. You put this church together, not man. And so we pray for each and every one of them, Lord. Each and every person has a unique circumstance in this difficult time they're going through. May each and every one of us turn to you for help. We pray for the world at this point as well, Lord. They're lost and they're doing everything humanly possible to try to beat this, to try to uh, gain the economy back or whatever it may be. But, but in the end, they could, they could gain the world and lose their souls, Lord. What would it profit them? And so we pray, Lord, you would use this time of difficulty to harvest many souls, to bring them to you, Lord, to cause people to bring, come from the dark and bring them into the light, to show those who were blind that they can see in Christ and they can have new life, Lord. So we beg you for the salvation of lost people. We think of our missionaries during this time. We know they have gone through much trials and tribulation during this, many that are in third world countries or in more difficult economic situations, Lord. We pray you would continue to meet their needs. Thank you for the brothers and sisters who met the need of Didier this week and able to give him a gift, Lord, to sustain them, Lord. Or we think of our other missionaries, Lord, that you would meet their needs as well. Father, we think of people within our church that are struggling, small business owners that don't know that they can hang on through this difficulty those who work in retail that are shut down, certainly our medical community, those who are there on the front lines, nurses and doctors and, and employees of hospitals and, and medical industry, Lord, please protect them, Lord. Protect our families, Lord. We, we love one another and we love our little ones, Lord. And, and those who are elderly, are retired, Lord, please protect them. Those who are, um, uh, have gone through chemo or treatments or surgeries, 
uh, please, uh, Lord, protect them as they go through this. We think of our singles, Lord, that um, have not yet found that person that you have for them for, for a life of marriage, Lord. This can be an uncertain time for them as well. And we pray that they would uh, cling to the body of Christ and others. We think of our young marrieds, Lord. We have so many young married couples in our church, Lord, as they go through this first world pandemic, Lord, that maybe they've ever known this, this type of uh, issue, Lord, as a young married couple. Cause them to be uh, close to each other as they draw close to you through these times. We think of our, all of our unsaved family members. I imagine each person knows somebody or has somebody in their family that doesn't know Christ and we long for you to use this Lord. Lord we also think of those who are about ready to go into surgeries and there's some that had surgeries this last week Lord please heal them up protect them give them strength Lord to trust you through these times Lord. Father we thank you for the word of God that we can come to it it is it is a stalwart it is it is a high tower we can run into Lord. It is your truth it is your word. And so today, would you fill us with that truth? Give us strength as we teach your word. May it encourage us greatly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning is what they officially call Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday our Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago came into Jerusalem. Um, And it really is the kickoff of what we often call the Passion Week. That week where the Lord Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and if you've been following our series in Mark, we've seen much of this. We have seen Jesus ride in and and then begin to cleanse the temple and then go into this great time of instruction, both personally and privately to his disciples and then to the crowds and to the religious leaders. But I had Pastor Jerry read this text in John, and that's where I want to start for an introduction here. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, and then we'll move back to Philippians 4, and we'll finish that text out this morning. But this is an amazing text, as you saw as, or heard as Jerry was reading here, that Jesus came in, and he came in with this large crowd. Uh, remember what had been happening. He, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, many people have been following him Blind men had received their sight just before that. He is making his way to Jerusalem, and not just to the city. He is making his way to the cross. That is his goal. He's undeterred. He has set his chin towards the fulfillment of his father's plan. And so as he comes in, uh, and so many people had recognized what he had done, and at least believed there was something unusual about this guy, let alone could he be the Messiah. And so the palm branches go down, and there's where we get our term Palm Sunday, and coats, and all of that is gathered as the Lord Jesus Christ rides on this unridden donkey that he sent his disciples to go get. So he rides into the streets into Jerusalem. And they begin to cry out, and they quote passages like Psalms 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 13. Even the king of Israel, see they're, they're thinking that this might be him. Remember, they are looking at this as, as the Messiah is coming to crush their enemies, set up the kingdom right then. And unfortunately, like so many people, they did not know, did not believe they needed a savior before a king. And certainly Jesus is a king, but he first and foremost came to die. That was what they were not expecting. They did not see the need for someone to ransom them from their sins. And so he comes in and, and he begins to Right in on this young donkey, as is written, and here John 
inserts Zechariah 9, 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. Just as the word of God had prophesied, so the Lord Jesus came in. And in verse 17, you start to see these crowds that have come. They have come from the tomb of Lazarus. They've seen that testimony. And then there's a remarkable statement, verse 19, that the Pharisees who hate him and are already planning his death make. Notice at the end of verse 19, I love this phrase. I, was, I think if I was there, I would have said, can I quote you on this? Notice what he says. Uh, the Pharisee says here, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. What a statement. Oh, I wish, <laughs> I wish we could say that now. I, I, I trust we can. I, I wish he would use our church to do such a thing. And he would use us that we would preach Christ so much that the world has gone after him. And what's interesting about that is right after that statement is made, John records these Greeks who want to see Jesus. And you know this story in verses 20 through 26. Here comes these non-Jews. They are asking for a meeting with Jesus. And they come to Philip and they, they request that Philip ask Jesus if they could meet with him. And Philip goes to Andrew in verse 22. And they together go and ask the Lord Jesus. And his statement that he returns is profound. And it's not only for Greeks, it's for Jews. It's for all people what he says. He says in verse 23... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, all through his ministry, he kept saying, my hour is not yet. It is not my hour yet. Now he has changed that wording and has said, my hour has come. And not just an, uh, any hour, an hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we go, well, this is a, an interesting hour. This is his death. This is his betrayal. This is, this is evil men having their way. This is the satanic forces seeming to win here. But not in God's eyes. This is God's plan. This is God's gospel. This is the gospel of God that he would come and he would suffer this way. And in reality, you and I know this to be true if you're a Christian. This is glorious. Because without it, without it, there is no glory. And so I love this statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he goes on, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's speaking of his own death. I have to die if you and I are to be saved. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And anybody who's ever planted a seed knows that that seed dies and from the death of that seed comes new life out of that and spurts up a piece of corn or a bean or whatever maybe you may, might be growing. He's using that illustration to show his own death. I must die so fruit will come. What a blessing. As I read this this week, I thought, Lord, I am that fruit. You, uh, brother, sister in Christ, you're that fruit because Christ died. That's why this is so glorious. Verse 25, he who loves his life will lose it. So now he's starting to separate those who will bear fruit. Um, there's people who love this life. Everything they think is this life. That's not who will gain the next life. And then he says, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. And so it's, it's not a hatred of, wow, God gave me this life, a hatred that we would say, well, I hate this. But realizing that this life takes a back seat to our life in Christ. Uh, our life in Christ has protos, has first place, is the Greek term for that. He has first place in our life. Those are the ones who gain eternal life, that Jesus is everything to us. 
Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. See, he's, he's separating right now, right off the beginning. You can't be, a, well, I believe in Jesus, but not follow him, not obey him, not, not have a heart and a mind and a soul that's desiring, growing in its desires to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, this is who gains this fruit, who gains this eternal life, are those who follow me. And he says, where I am, there my servants will be also. This is a, a term the Lord Jesus uses quite a bit at the end of his life. Where you are, I am. Uh, this is what we say he'll never leave us nor forsake us coming out of Hebrews chapter 13 we'll look at that in a few minutes and so he's reminding us those who follow him he'll always be with us no matter what the circumstances and oh are these disciples going to go through difficult times way more than what we are suffering even today and he promises them anyone who follows me I will be with them and if anyone serves me the father will honor him we're so worried about who gets honored nowadays. Who, who gets the honor of the press and all that. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ and he will honor you. The Father himself will honor you. And he'll lay up a crown reserved for you and the eternal life that comes with it. Here's the verse I want to connect to uh, our text on contentment in Christ. I, I, I want you to see, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's, in, he's in now these these. Greeks are wanting to see him. He gives a message to every believer that we've just read here, these last few verses. And then we see a Christ who is absolutely content with what the Father has for him. It is not easy. You'll see, uh, you'll see his stress that is on him in his humanity that comes out of him in this statement, but he is content with what the Father's doing. And that's what our message is about in Philippians 4, but I want to see verse 27 and 28 before we go there. He said, now my soul has become troubled. This is our Lord Jesus Christ living in this world. Fully God, but dressed in humanity. He is incarnate. He is now like his brethren. He is suffering all things. He knows what's coming his way. He knows the rejection of man. He knows the death that's coming. And worst of all, he knows the Father is going to dump the sins of all who will believe on him. He is going to be separated from his father. And so he begins to say, my soul is troubled. And then he says, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? Question mark. Notice that in your Bible. What should I give up on this plan that you have laid down for me? No, look at the contentment with Christ, with what his father is doing in difficult circumstances. Contentment doesn't mean everything is great in our life. Contentment means that we are good with God. Whatever he chooses. Life, death, viruses, calamity, all of those. And so here's how our Lord responds here. Look at this. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is it. I'm content with you, Father. I am not looking forward to this in my humanity, all the struggle that I'm going to go through, the pain, the separation. I'm troubled in my spirit over this, but this was your plan. I'm content with you, Father. No matter what you bring my way. The father's response to his son is so beautiful. Look at verse 28 with me. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. This is out of this response. I'll do whatever you want. I know you have a purpose for this hour. I want you glorified. Whatever happens. Boy, I I hope we can say this on our deathbed. (laughs) If, If we have that opportunity 
Because that's literally what Jesus is doing. He's days away from his crucifixion. He says, whatever happens here, Lord, I want you glorified. I trust in you. I, I trust explicitly in your plan. And then, he, then out of the sky, notice what happens. But for this purpose, I've came to this hour, Jesus says. He's content with it. And, and the Father comes out of the sky. Uh, and he says, then a voice came from heaven, John reports. John's there. John's an eyewitness, right? And an ear witness here, right? I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I bring you this passage, one, because it's Palm Sunday, and I want you to understand the, the bigger picture of what happened on Psalms, uh, Palm Sunday. It is, it is somewhat of a sobering Sunday because he's coming to die, and yet most of the crowds don't know, but Jesus and the Father are on the exact same page. And Jesus is going to do the dying. He's going to do the suffering. He's going to, he's going to do the atoning work. He's going to propitiate the wrath of the Father on our place, in our place, and yet he is absolutely content with what the Father is doing. He's content in the midst of such difficulty. Well, as you take your Bibles and you turn to Philippians 4, that is the theme that Paul has been teaching us, is that we need to be content. And he gives us many things as we've gone down through this, and I'll rehearse this through the first point, of how we can find contentment, how we can have peace over anxiety, how we can trust him. And it's so much of it comes back to this, our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in our place. Well, let's look at four thoughts this morning as we finish up these last few verses of this text. Number one, when prayer and meditation become practice, anxiety turns to peace and contentment. Look at that again. When prayer and meditation become practice, anxiety turns to peace and contentment. Parasso is the Greek word for practice. And it is a present imperative here. It is not a suggestion. Paul is telling the followers of Christ, we need to practice these things. He's speaking from one of experience. And he's referring back to what he has already spoken about. He's, he says it starts with rejoicing. Chap, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 there. Notice, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. That's where it starts. Uh, friend, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be one who rejoices. It starts there. You want to you have peace and contentment with what God's doing. It starts with worship. It starts with rejoicing in the Lord. And then from there, God builds a gentle spirit with us. We're, we're not so wound up. We're not so fearful. There's a general spirit because we believe, as verse 5 says, God is near. He, he's with us. He has not left us through this virus. He's not left us in time of death that maybe some are experienced who know Jesus Christ. He is there. In fact, for those who die, he's there to carry you into the presence of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I would imagine that brings great comfort. And then, notice there's victory over anxiety because we come to God through thanksgiving in prayer. And so we first we rejoice. Second, we put our confidence in the Lord as he creates a, general, a, a gentle spirit because he's near to us. And then next, he gives us victory over anxiety because we begin to pray different. Our prayers are not just full of give me, give me, I need, I need. <laughs> They're full of thanksgiving and gratitude. And this peace starts to pass over you and it guards, verse 7, it starts to guard your heart and mind. And it transcends human reality. 
It, it transcends human abilities. That's the idea. Transcends the, the, the fleshly mind because the Spirit of God now helps us grasp this peace that we have. And so many Christians are doing very well as we speak with the church over and over, phone call after phone call, email after email, letter after letter, we hear from the church telling us God is sustaining them. They have peace. There's others going through a little more difficulties and we're working with them, but so many are finding peace with God and they're practicing these things. Then last week we spent our time on verse eight and here we began to realize the next step to guarding our hearts and mind was to dwell on things. And we challenged ourselves, what do we dwell on? What do we meditate? The Greek word means to really think upon these things, ponder deeply. And then we connected the dots that the only thing that could really fit those adjectives in verse eight was the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. What else could, could fit that description but the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And so we spent last week, just in verse eight, sitting down, one, uh, marveling and wondering at the greatness of Christ in his word that he's given to us. And then we come to verse nine, and once we've dwelt on him, we become one who practices, practices. Isn't it interesting, and I think we could say this, we practice what we dwell on, don't we? Whatever's in our heart and soul, whatever's captured us, uh, this is good and bad, right? If your mind is consumed with things that are godless, guess what you will practice in time? And people often say, well, pastor, why did, why did that person go astray? Because they went astray a long, long time ago. The things that were in their minds and their hearts, they eventually had to practice. Their moral upbringing could only hold them for so long. Soon, practice takes over. But Paul is saying to us Christians, hey, practice these things. Look at verse 9 with me. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul is reminding us that practice now becomes reality. So we practice dwelling, meditating, thinking deeply about Christ and his true, that he's true and he's right and he's pure and he's of good repute and so forth. We practice those things. We practice in the word of God, reading the word of God, believing it to be true and right and pure. We, we believe that, we practice that, and then it begins to flush out into our life. See, this is what discipleship is. This is where we grow. This is what begins to happen to us. And so one who practices, it becomes lifestyle. It becomes the lifestyle of a Christian. Not perfection in any way. None of us would say, oh, I've reached the pinnacle. I've, I've risen to the top and I'm just right there. No, no. Practice means there's a consistency here. And so once there's a consistent lifestyle, then God starts to entrust to you others that you can lead into the practice of following Christ. That's what he does. This is how the church works. He raises up brothers and sisters who know Christ, dwell on him, learn about him, and then he gives them souls to care for and pass on those truths. This is why we push discipleship here. Are we discipling somebody? If you've been at Riverbend or another Bible teaching church for a long time, you should be discipling somebody. This is because you meditated and you grew and you, you know this God who is with you and, and will not forsake you nor leave you. See, Paul knew this process more 
than anyone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he's defending his ministry. In verse 15, he says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ, Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So Paul says, look, you can have a lot of tutors. But he says, look, the people, and he, and he gives himself credit in here by the inspiration of God, that I have poured into you like no one else. And we see that. We have the Timothys and Titus and Euphrates and so forth. All of these different men, Aphrodites, and all of them, all because of Paul's ministry. Books written to these men, the Timothys and Titus and so forth. Because he poured his life into the next person. And so no one cared for the souls of the church like Paul. And then he, he says in verse 16, therefore I exert you to be an imitator of me. So look, brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to make here is if we are ones who dwell on Christ and his word, and then we practice such things, then we should imitate those things to others. And we should be leading some in ministry as we look at leaders who they believe God is calling them to be a leader of the church in some capacity, whether it's an elder or a deacon or, or a Sunday school teacher or whatever it may be, one of the questions as we look at them and help them uh, examine their life is we ask them, do you have anybody who follows you? And, and if they're following you, where are you leading them? Has this happened in your life? Have you become a person who loves Christ? You've dwelt and meditated on these things. These things have become practice. And now God gives you a following. He gives you people. Maybe they're little ones or, or big ones or old ones or young ones. But they're following you as you follow Christ. And that's what Paul says. Look, you'll have many tutors. He says, but look, I'm a father to these people. He had a great love for the Corinth church, even though they were difficult. He loved them and wanted to lead them to Christ. And so his word was to teach others, pass this on. I mean, the question has to come down. Do you, do you want to stay in anxiety? Or do you want to have peace? That's what's, what's, what's going on here. Do you want to be content or you want to covet? Covetousness is that last command that is given and really brought forth and expounded on in the New Testament. It's that one that nobody can see. It's in the heart and the mind uh, it eventually can be seen, but, but it covets desire something. And, and a, covet, a person who is uh, stuck in the sin of covetousness is a discontented person. They're, they're not grateful for what God's given them. So they're always looking for the next. What can I have next? What can I have next? Do you, do you want that? I, I promise you'll have great anxiety and you won't have peace. Paul is saying, if you want that, if you want, if you want peace, if you want contentment, practice these things. Put them into place. These are the spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible, pray, share the gospel with people. This is the act of someone who is content in Christ. You, act, you will practice what you dwell on. I promise you. Whatever you dwell on, you will practice. And you know as well as I that when we dwell on things that are not of God, we will lead us to places we don't want to go. But we'll be there and we'll find ourselves now in sin and, and lose our joy and, and now we need to confess and repent and turn from those things. The world says you are what you eat. The Bible says you are what you practice. You are what you practice. But the way you know that you are truly practicing and you're walking with the Lord is there's people around you who now want to know what you're doing. What you've 
and how you invest in them. Look, Paul was so consumed with the gospel. A verse that is up in my office that many of you have seen, is that Paul says, for I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So everything, whether he was preaching Genesis uh, to, to the letters that he was writing, everything he was consumed with Christ, all doctrine and, and, and theology, all came based in his knowledge and his love for the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified for him. And that, that's contagious. When you're a lover of Christ, when you're a lover of a, this one who laid down his life for us, ransomed us, did what we could not do, pretty soon you become consumed by that and people know that of you. And they, they may not like it, but they know it. And they'll say, oh yeah, so-and-so, you gotta watch out for them. They're gonna tell you about Jesus. Well, that's probably a good statement, especially if it's done out of kindness and love. Oh, we are what we practice, aren't we? Now, that doesn't mean that you just run around and talk about Jesus all the time. You need to know the Bible. Paul challenged Timothy that he would rightly divide the word of God. Handle it. Cut it straight. Don't work around issues that you don't like. Handle the word of God verse by verse. Teach it. Believe it. And this is one who is practicing these wonderful truths. Look with me just at Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Um, kind of a sister church to Philippi was Colossae. And in chapter 3, verse 15, he gives, I, I think, almost a summation of some of these verses um, it, to the church of Colossae. They're written a little different, but they have the same context that he's been writing to the church in, in Philippi. Look at verse 15 with me. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Wow, what a word. The verb there has says, have authority. Have dominion. Let it, let it be the standard, the rule of your heart, to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. So we are one body of people, a group of people. We're, we're in our homes. We're, we're scattered all over right now, but we're one body because of one Lord who gave his one life for us. And we now belong to him and we're called into that, meaning kaleoed, he selected us, he called us, he put us into his church, he made us his bride. And notice the, the, the last statement, and be thankful. Are you thankful God saved you and he put you in this church? Are you grateful for that? Are, are, are you looking forward to being back together? How you're gonna serve with a new heart maybe? Um, how you're gonna be excited to be involved in new ministry starts and, and, and not just tell people to go do these, but yet be involved with it. And, and choose those things because there's thanksgiving building in your heart. Notice verse 16. This goes along with verse 8 of chapter 4 of Philippians. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. All those things, right, pure, good repute, all those things. Let the word of Christ. So both the person of Christ and his word, the living word and the written word, let it dwell full in you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing, all of those things, right? The word of God gives us wisdom, Wisdom so we can know God, know who he is. There's a pursuit of God. You want to beat sin? Pursue God. I promise you, you'll never beat sin if you don't pursue him. If you don't want to know him, understand him and who he is. Start in Genesis and read. See this God of the Old Testament has to deal with the most sinful people who reject him in chapter 3 and then go through wars and terrible things all the way through the Bible so that Jesus will come and die. Know that God. Know that God. Know that he is also teaching us. The Bible is given for our teaching. 
the inspired, we looked at this last week, that God breathed, it's his very breath. He gave us the word of God to teach us. Not, not our own opinions, not, not men standing in pulpits and sharing psychology and their own views. Are we teaching the word of God? That's what we're to dwell on. God's words, not Scott's words or anyone else's words. We dwell on the word of God and then we let the word of Christ admonish us. Oh, how many out there need to be admonished? Something is in your life that needs to be challenged. Is that of God? Are you walking with him? Have you repented and turned from that sin? The word of God, this, this beautiful word of Christ that dwells in us is there to admonish us, to expose things that are not of him. You, you don't, you, you're not content? Doubtlessly, there's probably sin. There's most likely sin that you've been dwelling on. You've let it get a hold of you instead of being content with Christ and letting the word of God admonish you. Oh, friend, brother and sister, read your Bibles. It'll bring you to repentance. You'll, you'll be one who confesses sin and you'll turn from it. Repentance, turn from it. And you'll have your joy back. You'll walk with the Lord Jesus. You'll have your joy back. Some of you have lost your joy because you're not walking with him. You're not letting him richly dwell within you. And then what happens is you can't help but sing, right? The psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with thanksgiving just begins to break out of your heart. You might be driving. You might be sitting at home. You might be at work. And that, that understanding of that gratitude of what Jesus comes often, often in many people, comes out in song. We begin to express through music and through uh, words of encouragement as we sing those truths. And then he just stops in verse 17. He says, whatever you do, no matter where you are, Walk alive, male, female, young, old, retired, working, doesn't matter. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, so we become different men and women, boys and girls. We're practicing something different. So whatever we are, if, we're, if we, dig a, we have a shovel in our hand all day or you're, or you're handling the finances of the world, whatever it may be and everything in between there, now there is a reason to do it. There's joy in our heart. There's contentment for what the Lord has done for us. And we're giving thanks. Notice the end of the verse. Giving thanks through him to God the Father. So trust God, not man. Trust God, not yourself. Not our own fallen wisdom. Pray and turn to God with thanksgiving and dwell on him. His word and his gospel. I promise you this will grant you God's peace. You'll start to have peace in your life and it'll surpass your human reason, your own human reason. See, this is supernatural peace. This is supernatural contentment. The world doesn't have it. We have it. Offer it to them. That's what the Lord wants us to do. Second thought. Those content in Christ trust in the sovereign plan of God. Those content in Christ now trust in the sovereign plan plan of God. Look at verses back in our text, Philippians 4, 10, 11. Look at these two verses. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. There he is. He's rejoicing again. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, that I am. So here Paul now is, he's been ministering to the church of Philippi. They've known him for about 10 years. 
And they have supported Paul through many ministries. We can track them, their support of Paul, through Acts chapter 17 and verse 18. There we see him ministering in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. And Paul says, you've been with me for this long time. But somewhere along the line, for some unknown reason, their support, whether financial, prayer for, communication, whatever it is here, has lacked opportunity. Paul says it's lacked opportunity. And, and listen, Paul had been going through uh, this appeal process as he's working his way to Rome and, and Caesar's court. And it's quite possible Paul was very difficult to get a hold of during this time. Remember, he was traveling by sea. He was traveling by land. He went to a shipwreck. He was snake bit. He's been on trial and appeals. He's now, as he writes this letter, he's under house arrest. Not easy to minister to this guy. He is constantly on the move for the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows this is what God has for him. But notice in verse 10 that the joy that Paul has, that the relationship between them now has opportunity again. Oh boy, I love this. Isn't this so fitting? We're separated right now, and, and it's interesting what's going on. We are seeing people feeding other people and caring for needs and praying with other people. Lots of good things are happening we see in the church. But, but really, we're lacking opportunity in some ways to be together. That time is coming. And I think like Paul will rejoice in that opportunity to be together. But think about our missionaries. Paul was a missionary in all intents and purposes. In fact, we call his journeys the missionary journeys of Paul or usually in a map in the back of your Bible. And when you have opportunity, you think of these people who are doing something that we can't. And we look for opportunities. I'm so grateful for the response um, to Didier. One dear brother in the church, he just was relentless on me this last week. He, he had money, he wanted to get a Didier, and, and that's not easy, getting it in there. And so I had to work with Paul and how to get that wired in there, and just very difficult to get money there, but he just would not give up. God had put it on his heart, and I'm so grateful for that brother. He knows who he is, to give that uh, large sum of money so that Didier, and combined with other people who give, and, and, and a gift from the church, that we could help them, because you long to have opportunity with them. Now, See, I, I believe Paul is also happy here because as soon as the church in Philippi had an opportunity, they jumped at it. I, I think that's encouraging to a pastor. When you see people who maybe don't have the opportunity, uh, economics, health, whatever reason, but the moment God gives them opportunity, man, they jump at it. Boy, that's encouraging. And I think Paul is truly encouraged by this mark of contentment in, in the Philip. The Philipp, the Philippian believers, sorry, the Philippian believers are content too, but uh, the, these believers were content in their situation, and it caused them to give. Now, Paul seems to be overjoyed because the church is acting within God's sovereign plan. Um, they are not requesting and, oh, woe is me, we're going through this hard time, or Apostle Paul's in uh, house arrest. They are just reacting to what God can, gives them to do. And so, they recognize what God is doing and they gain joy by submitting to the plan of God. You want joy? Submit to the plan of God. Are you fighting it? You won't have joy. So this is why I believe Paul is so full of joy. He's chained to a Roman guard. He has possible death looming in his future. But he believed and he taught that the connection of heartfelt obedience and contentment were connected. They lacked opportunity. As soon as they got it, they took it. And he sees that is the road to contentment. Take what you have, 
look to share it with somebody else. Be content with what God has given you. Whatever that dollar figure at the end of the year is you file, God gave you that. Be content. Give within those means. That's what God does. Look at verse 11 with me. I love this verse. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now Paul says that he, he is not speaking from want. The word means need or poverty or, or de- some kind of deficiency. Meaning this joy, what he's saying, is this joy is not coming because of their gift, as though he, their gift was his only hope. He says in Romans chapter 5 too that he exalts in the hope of the glory of God, right? The glory of Christ. But this verse reminds us of the heart of Paul as a shepherd. He's full of joy because the church is serving God and meeting needs. That's what's bringing him joy. Paul knows that this is an evidence of a healthy, Christ-loving, content church. But, but let's think about our own lives for just a moment. We can confuse the truth of contentment by distorting the difference between needs and wants. Between needs and wants. What do we really need? See, if we don't separate needs and wants, we have to separate that, and that's why this is an important passage. We will actually fall into this rat race the world's in. Keep up with the Joneses. Get the next whatever. And we'll be consumed with those things instead of being consumed with Christ. One of the prayers, I wrote a prayer down um, just in my notes, something that I try to do on a regular basis because like you, I'll struggle with contentment at times and I'll find my focus wrong somewhere. And so here's what I wrote. This is just a prayer that I use. Lord, help me to see your glory daily. It's one of the things I have to ask the Lord to help me see. I want to see his glory. I want to see who he is. I want to see what the Father saw, that he was going to glorify him. I want to see his beauty. And, and when I don't, then I'm caught up with what the world has. So, so instead, I said, Lord, show me your glory. And to be content with what you choose to give me. What a great prayer. Lord, this is what you've given me. Maybe I, um, I want something more. And it begins to lose my joy there. Lord, um, I want to see your glory. I want that to help me be content with what you've given me. And I want you to help me, Lord. Please help me within those means to magnify your name. So whatever you have chosen by your sovereign plan to give me, May I use those things to glorify your name. What a good prayer. Let me read it just once together. Lord, help me to see your glory daily and to be content with what you choose to give me and help me with those means to magnify your name in this life. That's, that's a prayer that I will, help, will help you. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, you know, be content with shelter and food. Be content with shelter and food. that's not quite the American dream is it got a roof over your head got a little bit of food be content just imagine if we just start there thankful for your home thankful for the food God gives you trust in a sovereign God and his plans will keep you content number three those content in Christ accept the mysterious nature of God's will those content in content in Christ except the mysterious nature of God's will. Look at verse 12 with me. I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Well, 
I think what Paul says is, look, I've seen both sides of the fence. I've been there. And, and I thought about this quite some time. I thought, Lord, may, maybe Paul's speaking about abounding and plenty. He's speaking of his pre-converted life in this highly elite religious position he have. Because, and I ask this question, because nowhere in the New Testament do we see Paul abounding in excess. There's, there's nothing in there that shows us that he has material needs, you know, abounding in any way. In fact, he's often suffered if you just have, just for the sake of time, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just read that. He, he talks about all his shipwrecks and nights in the deep and snake bits and, and people after him and trying to kill him and then his concern for the churches. I mean, you just hear his heart come out of the weight that he carries in ministry. And yet in all of that, he says, God's grace is sufficient for all of this. But I want you to see this real key term here in verse 12. Notice it says, learn the secret. Learn the secret. It, I think most of the translations have it phrased something like that. Mueo is the Greek word there. It's actually a perfect passive. So it it's means something that took place in the past, but has continual ramification, but it was done to you. So you could translate it something like this. I, I was made to learn the secret of God's plan, that God's plan is trustworthy. I was made to understand. Even though I don't, I don't understand the plan of God, I was brought to that. So I translate it this way. Learning contentment even in the mysterious, providential, planned circumstances of God. Let's face it, there are things that are mysterious to us. Why God does what he does. We don't understand it. Well, Isaiah tries to remind us of that. 55, uh, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. <laughs> Remember that little verse? And so some of God's will is very mysterious to us. So Paul is saying that he had learned to be content with an empty tummy, with a full one, having everything I need, I'm content, or even during times of suffering, I've learned to be content, even during God's mysterious will. Because it is mysterious at some times. And God will often use things in our life that we do not know why he did that. I don't know how many times I've said that in a council meeting. I said, I don't, I don't know why God let you go through this. I, I don't know. But he's perfect in everything he does. I've often told people this. We don't understand the providence of God until it goes by. Then we go, oh, that's what he was doing. We don't understand providence of God right now. I, I can't tell you what he's doing. There's certain things I know he's going to do because the Bible tells us, but but providence is understood beforehand. We trust the sovereign providence of God. That's what brings you contentment. And so we understand that there are things that God does that we just can't fully get our mind around. Remember the verse, Hebrews chapter 13, I alluded to this early. Or I just want to make reference to this and then we'll look at our last point quickly. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you or desert you or I'll never forsake you. Boy, I've heard that verse quoted a lot this week. I invite you to write it down and go look at it later because there's more information in that verse than what we often quote. In fact, it says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Pooh. See, we want to quote that God's always with us, never forsake us, which is so true. Where I am, he is. We know the Lord Jesus has said this over and over. But the, but the verse starts out, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Why? Because you're dwelling on things that are not 
pure and right. You're, you're consumed with something that, that God wants you to be satisfied in him, not in those things. And so to understand that he never deserts you and never forsakes you, never leaves you, there's a practice. Don't love money. <laughs> you will never understand this great God who, who cares for us and owns everything and holds all the world in his hands if you love money. The old translation called it filthy lucre. And then it says this, be content with what you have. Be content for what you have. Then it makes a statement, for he himself said, I'll never desert you, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. So there's that practice. Lord, we need money to function, we gotta pay bills, house payments, you know, go to see the doctors, all that stuff. We got. He knows that, he knows that. Thank him for what he gives you. Be content for what you have. He'll never leave you nor desert you. And you'll, those things will become true when you're content with what he has. Last thought. Four, the joy of our contentment is the evidence of Christ in us. The joy of our contentment is the evidence of Christ in us. Look at verse 13 with me. And 14, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now this, verse 13, is really a key verse. It's really the pinnacle of the passage. This is not a verse for your high school team to put on their wall. <laughs> I don't think it was meant for that. Um, it, is, it might be better off on your checks, <laughs> especially if you don't have a tremendous amount of money. Uh, Lord, I, I can do all things to you. Strengthen me. Maybe that's a reminder that he's with you. Maybe it needs to be on the dashboard of your old car that you despise. Um, maybe it needs to be over the front door of the home you're not satisfied. Um, maybe it needs to be thought about when you think of your spouse and family that sometimes you're not grateful for. God can strengthen you through Christ to do all things, to practice all these things we've talked about over these last three weeks in these sermons. He can do it. He can strengthen you to accomplish those things. Christ is the key word here as you look at this verse. He's sufficient. His character is sufficient. His death is sufficient. His life is sufficient. He sufficiently stands at the right hand of the Father. We positioned with him are there with him. We have everything we need in Christ. Everything is yes, amen in Christ. We have all that we need. And so what a powerful verse this is. Ephesians chapter two, verse five through seven says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. If he can take dead people, dead spiritually, no desire for God, no righteousness, no goodness in us, and make us positionally seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ, he can handle our bills. He can handle our medical. He can handle our virus. He can handle all of these things. He is sufficient. It is a verse of the sufficiency of Christ that we put our faith in him in him alone. Philippians chapter one, verse 21, as he started out this letter, he says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So life is Christ as a Christian. We, we can't forsake it. I've had people say, well, you know, you have to leave your Christ behind if you want to have a relationship with me. And I said, I can't. He's everything to me. So if you get Scott, you'll get Christ. And I hope you can say that, friend, believer, brother, sister, and Lord. You get me? You get Christ. For me to live is Christ. You want to kill me? 
Well, that's gain. Because I get to go be with him physically forever. That, that's, who our li- that's what our life is made up of now. So Paul says, let your love abound still more and more in the beginning of this book. Let it grow. One last verb I want to look at in verse 14, and then we'll end with this. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Share. It's an interesting word. I want to close with this. The root word of that share is the word we get koinia, right? You remember what koinia means, to fellowship, right? To be together, be one. So Paul says, look, you koinia'd with me. I'm overwhelmed that even in this time of affliction, I'm chained to a guard, I've been beaten, I've been brought before courts. I don't know if I'm gonna get out of this, um, if I'm gonna be poured out as an offering right now. He says, I'm not sure how that's all gonna come about. But you shared with me. You shared with me. And I love that. I mean, you took fellowship with me when I wasn't very, uh, in a very good position. I got chains. I'm with guards. I'm sequestered. And you shared with me. Wow, what a term. Do we koinia with one another? Do you weep with those who weep? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Or are you so lost in what you want, in your own desires? Have you missed the blessings of being involved with a church that together is rejoicing with one voice? Weeping with those who go through difficulties. Rejoicing with those who are blessed. Not not being envious or jealous of somebody else's blessing from God, but rejoicing with them. See, these believers shared in it, and that's why that's why they had a hope for contentment. Do you trust him? Do you dwell on him? Do you meditate on him? Are you consumed with him? Have you partaken of him so that you would find contentment and peace would overcome anxiety and you would find the joy in the Lord and you would rejoice? I pray that's true. If not, I'd ask you to repent right now. Right where you're at, get on your knees. Tell the Lord, confess your sin. Repent of that. Tell him you're, you're not content. You have a lot of loves in your life that are not him first. You've lost your joy, Christian. Tell him that. If you're listening to this and you go, I don't have Christ, I don't know the Jesus you described, ask him to show you himself. Ask God to reveal Jesus Christ to you. Plead with God to show you who he is. And he will show you a savior like none other one who died for your sins. He will open your heart, he will plunge faith, and you will repent of your sins and you'll turn to him because God's doing it, not you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this series of messages in Philippians, Lord. Thank you for the elders leading me to teach it. We're so grateful for the opportunity we have as Christians to be content. Many of us fall into times of discontentment. But these passages are reminding us that we don't have to. Anxiety does not have to sweep over us. Fear and and worry do not have to be our life. We do not have to wake up in the morning and have anxiety and fear. We have a Lord Jesus Christ who is sufficient. And Lord, it doesn't mean that we, many of us, struggle with these things. We do. They are real. We have real struggles. But we are reminded that you are enough, Jesus. And we pray that as a church, we would care for those who struggle with these things. Help them through. Take them to the word of God. Pray with them. Weep with them. And be there to rejoice when they have victory. 
And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to meditate and dwell on these things, Lord. Each and every day, when we start our morning out, dwell on the things of Christ. Dwell on the word of God. And Lord, you'll give us joy and contentment. We'll begin to practice these things for your glory, Lord. We're so grateful for your word, Lord. It's, it restores our souls. and causes us to have, have great hope in you and to exalt the Son just as the Father does, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Now hear our last song, Lord, as we worship you as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.